U.S. Army said, look, we know that the Soviet Union doesn't have the training to operate effectively at night. And so the Army said, we want to own the night. To me, if the Army did the same thing that they did with, we're going to own the night, we're going to own robotic warfare, I think it would allow us to really cause the Russians pause. I can see autonomous unmanned uh, casualty evacuation, autonomous unmanned resupply, robotic sentries, you know, for combat uh, outposts, etc. There'll be a whole lot of missions where you'll have nothing but unmanned systems doing it. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and I am joined by an especially esteemed guest in this episode, former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work. During his time in that role, he was responsible for overseeing the day-to-day operations of the Pentagon and shaping DOD's $600 billion program. He is perhaps most recognized for his role in developing what's called the Third Offset Strategy, the goal of which is to guarantee the U.S. military's overmatch against its strategic adversaries. He has, to put it simply, a ton of experience thinking about the future of warfare, and his remarks about that future that you'll hear in this episode are insightful and nuanced and really fascinating. But he also began his career as a Marine Corps officer just as the U.S. military was emerging from the Vietnam War and grappling with a range of Cold War era challenges. That gives him a broad perspective which, as you'll hear, influences the way he thinks about the challenges of today and tomorrow. We recorded the episode on the sidelines of a recent conference organized by the Army's Mad Scientist program. Their team has been hugely helpful in helping to arrange opportunities to feature some really great guests, so I want to send out a special thanks to them once again. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're new to the MWI podcast, make sure you find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a second and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Department of the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Bob Work. Mr. Bob Work, thanks so much for uh, joining us for a conversation that I'm really excited about. I think is going to be uh, is going to be a fascinating one. Uh, I guess if we can kind of start, you you've spent a lot of time thinking about the future, right? Um, uh, including as, in your time as Deputy Secretary of Defense. Um, I'd like to frame this conversation first by asking you what we mean when we talk about the future. Are we talking about the next couple of years? Are we talking about a generation, um, whether or not that's a generation of weapons or generation of soldiers or what have you, or are we looking even more beyond there? Well, when I think about the future, I'm, I'm always thinking first in terms of, because of, you know, I was former deputy secretary, what is the program? You know, what are the choices you have to make in the program to build the joint force that you're going to need to meet challenges that you're foreseeing in the future. In the QDR, it generally says we can't really look too much beyond 20 years. Why is that? Um, It just becomes too difficult for a technological uh, projection. You can make broad strokes and say, look, 
artificial intelligence we know is going to be important in the future, but you're not certain where it's going to be in 20 years or 40 years. You just know that it's going to be important and it will develop. Um, you know that guided munitions are, going, are proliferating on the battlefield, but you don't know, you know, in 20 years will everything be more based on drones rather than projectiles? You know, you, you just, there's so many technological uncertainties and a lot of uncertainties in the operational environment. What is the world going to be like in 20 years? So from a Department of Defense perspective, we generally think in terms of the first FITUP where we're trying to make changes that would provide comp fit up being the uh, fiscal year, uh, five year defense program or future years defense program. So that's what the strategic capabilities office does. It looks at all of the things that are in the system right now and they said, hey, how could we make that more lethal or more capable? So they looked at the SM-6 missile, which was designed as a surface-to-air missile uh, for the U.S. Navy, and they said, you know what, if we change the software, we could make that an anti-ship missile also. Um, and so in the first FIDIP, what you're trying to do is make decisions on what you have, how do you make them more lethal or capable, and what are the R&D kind of seeds that you're planning that the joint force will harvest in the fourth FIDIP. So the second and third FIDIP are where you're trying to pull as much things to the left that are in the technological realm. So you see stuff out there, hey, there's all sorts of advances in robots. We're going to try to pull that into the second and third FIDIP. Or, wow, there's cyber offensive and defensive things that are really coming on strong. We think we can get them into the joint force in the second and third FIDIP. So that's the, you know, six to 10 year horizon and the 11 to 15 year horizon. And then you have DARPA that's looking at the fourth FIDIP and beyond and saying, what the heck is going to happen out there and what decisions should we be making? So when I think about the future, I'm thinking, you know, this is a very constrained way, you know, where you, your experience really uh, makes a big difference on how you do it. So I like to go like what the mad scientists do. I like to go out in 2050 and I say, what is the world going to look out there? I love science fiction movies and science fiction reading. But in terms of joint capabilities, you have to start making decisions and making choices between systems. And uh, so I think 20 years is a good future cast for the Department of Defense capability set. So that leads me into, I guess, a following question that um, I find really interesting. And there's been some discussion about this, but when you talk about especially advanced platform and weapons development and just the timeframes in terms of research development, acquisitions, fielding, um, sometimes that can extend out pretty close to that 20-year mark. I know. So if, if even if, say, DOD um, manages to attract the, the sort of wisest forecasters, and conceptually we, start, we, we have a great view of, of how things are going to look, how warfare is going to look in, uh, in 20 years from now, is it a challenge then marrying that up with the technological development and what are the the mechanisms to do that appropriately well that's an example i just read uh, today that the army gave five contracts for design for the new future aerial reconnaissance aircraft you know the replacement for the kiowa and it's designed to get into the system in 2028 so you know under the current thing the first one would hit the battlefield in 2028 wow. which is 10 years from now and in the next 10 years, what's going to be happening in unmanned systems? So this has been a big focus of the department. How do you shorten that developmental timeline? And I think this is the way it will break out. 
for manned systems, you're going to have a long developmental timeline because there are so many different uh, lethality vectors against manned platforms uh, that you're just going to have to figure it out. You know, do we have more stealth or not? Do we have active defenses or not? Do we have passive defenses? How much do we spend on our defenses and how much do we spend on offensive capability? So I think that for manned systems, this developmental cycle will still be relatively long. <clears throat> but I can easily foresee a future where the de design cycle for a robotic system would be no longer than five years. And we could get into a situation like the Air Force had in the 1950s, their Century Fighters. You know, they do the F-100, the Super Sabre. And, you know, they build like 100 or 200, and they say, ah, that's not good enough. So then they build the F-101 Voodoo. And they build a couple of those, and they said, it's not good enough. I don't know what happened to the F-103, but the F-104 Starfighter, they built some of those. Uh, and then they built the F-105 Thunder Chief. So what they were doing is they knew that technology was moving very fast, and they had the, um, the engineering, et cetera. Now, Dr. Will Roper, who's the acquisition executive in the U.S. Air Force, he believes with digital engineering now, you're really going to be able to speed this up. You're going to be able to design maybe 150 systems, get them out in the field, test them, and say, wow, we missed it up. Um, and so, okay, let's go to the century, you know, let's go to the F-101 uh, ro robot. So I think uh, this is one of the things I was talking about today, where if the Army did say, hey, I'm going to own robotic warfare, and they really concentrated on getting the development and uh, procurement cycle for robotic systems down, now you're really starting to see a future where the manned systems are taking longer because you just have to protect the people that are in them. But the robotic systems are going really fast and you're getting all sorts of new and interesting capabilities as you go. What you're describing sounds kind of, uh, sounds very iterative and incremental and, and testing and fielding and, and adapting, um, which I think is, um, it, it fits the tech. Does that mean that DOD will need to adapt organizationally or culturally in order to do that? Do we have the systems in place to really be able to field things in that way? The department's trying its best. Now, you get what you ask for in the acquisition system. So around 2007, 2008, Congress had had it up to, you know, they just said, department, you're having too many Nunn-McCurdy breaches, you know, where you have uh, your 15% uh, over your cost estimate. You have too many schedule slips. We had the literal combat ship. We had the future combat system. We had the Crusader. We had the uh, uh, Ford aircraft carrier. You know, and Congress said, enough is enough. And they uh, wrote what was called the WASARA, the Weapon System Acquisition Reform Act. And it was designed so that when you made your estimate for schedule and cost, you were as close as possible. Because they didn't want to have any non-McCurdies and they didn't want to have any schedule slips or cost overruns. Um, and so that's when CAPE, the cost analysis and program evaluation, they would do independent cost estimates. And if the service said, hey, it's going to cost $5, and the CAPE said, nope, it's going to cost $10, you'd go with the CAPE cost estimate. Um, and it worked. You'd have to be at the 70% confidence level on your schedule and 70% confidence level on your budget. And you're building these systems that are very high tech. You know, that's, that's pretty hard. So everything became very conservative. And if you look at the performance in the department, we did really well. The number of numna curties went down. The number of overruns went down. The size of the overruns went down. The schedule slips went down. 
but it was very conservative. So Congress, you know, we come out of, uh, you know, we get the NDS and say, oh my gosh, we're falling behind our, our competitors. We've got to be faster. We've got to be more innovative. We've got to change the way we're doing. And so they wrote in all sorts of new authorities, like uh, other transactional authorities in Section 804, which allow you to do things faster, or at least that's what they're designed to do. The department's having a hard time because all of our contractors have been built on the, uh, you know, we're trained on the old system, and they're trying to figure out, okay, if I use this new thing, if I dip my toe in the pool, am I going to fall in the deep end and drown? You know, are they going to hold it against me? So everyone sees the problem, John. Everyone sees the problem. Everyone wants to go faster. Uh, if you go, if you want something fast, and you haven't asked the right question, you know, what type of system do we need? What are the, what is, what is really important? You could go fast and screw it up. So we're going through this period of time where the department's trying to change the way it buys, and that's why I think we ought to bifurcate and say, okay, let's do something we think we can do. Let's get really good at getting robotic systems out faster in an interrib fashion. And for the manned systems where we have to, you know, make sure they can survive Gs, you know, have active protection systems, all that stuff, let's take a little bit more time. Let's try to make it shorter, but it's okay if that takes eight years instead of five or three for the robotics. Uh, you said that you think that the Army should, should strive to own robotic, robotic combat. Um, clearly, there are parallels with the 1970s you know, effort to own the night, so to speak. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. But what, what strikes me as most interesting, I think, about that is that the technological development that we're talking about right now is coming uh, in the context <coughs> of sort of increasing parity between the United States and the various threat actors on the, on, on the landscape. Usually when we talk about that context, we talk about challenges and risks and dangers, um, but you're talking about it as a potential space for an opportunity. Um, can, you, can you kind of explain why that 1970s analogy is, is, is a useful one for the way we should be thinking about robotics? Yeah, I mean, I was a young Marine lieutenant uh, you know, we, uh, the Joint Force just had just come out of Vietnam, very much like circumstances today. You know, a long, really grinding, uh, a regular war, a lot of, you know, there was conventional aspects to it, but it was really an irregular war. Um, and during that time, the Warsaw Pact completely modernized all of its ground combat systems. And so the Joint Force comes out of Vietnam and looks across and goes, oh my gosh, you know, the Soviet and the Warsaw Pact has become more powerful. At the technological level of tactical systems, they're pretty much even. The T-62 is good enough to take on a Patton, you know, an M-48 or an M-60. Uh, so, man, things are really bad. We're going to have to, and not only that, but they outnumber us. So I remember very vividly, I mean, the, everyone used to talk about we have to be able to fight outnumbered and win. And we would look at all of the historical battles where smaller units defeated larger units. What did they do? What type of tactics and techniques and procedures did they do? But as part of this, the Army, the U.S. Army said, look, we know that the Soviet Union doesn't have the training to operate effectively at night. Even though they had some of the technology. They had some of the technology, but their people weren't good. They didn't have the training. You know, they were generally, hey, let's bust people after a huge artillery barrage, get a penetration, and go, go like crazy. Um, and so the Army said, we want to own the night. And if it was just, uh, it was just a going out and buying a night vision goggle for every single soldier, 
you wouldn't own the night. You know, you have to teach the soldiers. At, at that point, you didn't have a lot of peripheral vision. And so the squads, uh, the members in the squads were losing situational awareness when they moved at night. Uh, you had to have different control measures. You had to have, you had to train your squad leaders and your team leaders, and you had to give everybody the confidence. So the Army built, you know, the doctrine, the TTPs, they did the training. And so when, I'd, I'd say it probably took a 10-year period. Uh, you know, by 1985, the Army owned the night. And when we went up against Saddam Hussein, we, you know, we operated 24-7. We were just going for it. And uh, generally, the Iraqis would only think they'd try to move at night if they thought they were going to get air attacked, but they wouldn't do nighttime operations. So it was an enormous advantage for us. It gave us a competitive tactical advantage. Uh, and I would argue an operational advantage because it actually uh, redounded to the operational campaign level. So in my view, if the Army said, we're going to own robotic combat, they're doing it because, first, the Army is really focused on our primary land competitor, Russia. And we have a better technical system. You know, uh, I think we have a more powerful, yeah, you know, we have more money, and we have better soldiers. And so to me, if the Army did the same thing that they did with, we're going to own the night, we're going to own robotic warfare, and they started going after these century, century uh, robots and training the force and trying to figure out what's the best command and control. You know, are we going to have human machine units? Or are we going to have all machine units? What's the best way? I mean, there's nobody better in the Army in you know, figuring out the doctrines and the TTP and the training and et cetera. So I think it would allow us to really cause the Russians pause because I don't believe if they saw that the U.S. Army was going all in, they'd say, whoa, this is going to be a real hard thing for us to compete on. Just like in precision guided munitions in the Cold War, you know, they said, man, game's over. We can't do that stuff. We can't do a salt breaker. Um, so this, to me, it's a big, big opportunity, as you said, John. This is an opportunity for the Army. And I think it would really excite the soldiers. I think it would, you know, uh, people get, okay, yeah, let's do this. You mentioned um, kind of this sort of open question about whether or not are we going to have all machine units? Is it going to be an issue of human-machine teaming? What's your view? Machine-to-machine um, -machine teaming are going to be the swarms, in my view, in the near term. And humans will unleash swarms for specific missions. Um, to me, I still believe that human machine units are going to be the winner. Mm -hmm. But I'm willing to say I don't know. I mean, uh, there may be certain instances like uh, the Armored Cavalry Regiment. Maybe the, maybe the ACR is completely unmanned because they're going to go out and develop the situation. Uh, but I would say, no, work, that wouldn't work. You're going to have to have somebody there controlling the machines and really kind of saying, okay, this is how we need to employ to develop the situation. So it always comes back to me that the human machine team is the winner uh, because I have so much faith in the individual soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. Uh, and I think that is the secret sauce. It's the, it's the creativity of the humans with the autonomous, you know, lack of fear, you know, uh, lack of anger, lack of regret, lack of anything. You know, the machines just do what the humans tell them. Uh, but the, uh, the, the humans are the creative spirit behind the whole combat team. So I still think that's the way to go. 
And if that's the case, sort of at the tip of the spear, which we tend to usually talk about, what about the kind of, you know, I don't want to call it more boring stuff, but the, the, the rest of the spear, the logistical aspect, are there places there where using unmanned autonomous technology just makes a lot more sense and there doesn't need to be a human involved? I, yes, absolutely. I can see autonomous unmanned uh, casualty evacuation, autonomous unmanned resupply. Um, there's all sorts of different things, robotic sentries, you know, for combat uh, outposts, et cetera. Um, there'll be a whole lot of missions where you'll have nothing but unmanned systems doing it. And it will be a, a question on whether the commander wants to delegate decision-making to the machine in, the, in that particular area. But in ground-to-ground -ground combat where, you know, you're going to have uh, forces intermixed amongst the people, you know, the humans, uh, sometimes the machines would make a kind of dispassionate decision that might put non-combatants at risk and stuff like that. So you're still going to need humans, uh, you know, really having in close combat situations. Uh, the Russians believe that you're going to have close combat robotic v. Ro robotic units. And that's what I, I, I want to ask. That's a <clears throat> great segue into the, my next question is, um, if we if we take a step back and kind of conceive of this as as a as a global competition, in terms of the other the ways in which our adversaries and in some cases our allies are conceptualizing this, thinking about it, framing it, how are we doing in that competition? Well, um, it's interesting. Each of the three competitors have a big, uh, the great power competitors have a big incentive to go to unmanned systems. For the United States, it is our people are our most valued and important asset. And whenever we can use unmanned systems to protect them, we're going to do that. Uh, for the Russians, it's a matter of demographics. You know, by 2030, they, you know, they only have a million men and women under arms right now. That's in their entire armed force. Um, they have a whole bunch more in uh, reserves. But their population is declining. And they know that they're going to have to, you know, if we're going to have an army in 2030, 2040, we're going to have to have a lot of robots. In China, it's a different situation. Because of one-child policy, every single Chinese sailor, soldier, airman, marine is what we would consider to be a sole surviving child. And you know how you know, we feel about that. We try to, you know, we don't, we do everything we can to say, okay, you know, saving Private Ryan, right? Um, so you have five brothers out there, four of them die. You're going to say, what are we going to do on this fifth, uh, fifth soldier? Um, the Chinese, every single person in their armed force is a sole surviving child. And in the Eastern culture, the young take care of the old. So there's an incentive to replace humans with machines in that regard, too. So each of the three competitors have different reasons why they want to go after robotics. And that's why I'm so certain, no matter what happens, you know, some robotics are going to be clunky and, you know, we're going to say, what the hell did we build this thing for? Uh, but, and we'll quickly go to another one. But I cannot conceive of a future of warfare where unmanned systems and robotics and autonomy are not central to what we're trying to do. <clears throat> you know, it also strikes me that we're talking, it, this is clearly a technological issue, uh, and yet so much of it, you know, reading Paul Shari's book, um, it strikes me that sort of there's this, this theme that runs throughout that there's this 
ethical normative layer of almost every question that we're asking about these things. Is that something new or is that also something that we've seen? Are there historical analogies where that sort of ethical issue is something that we had to wrestle with as, um, as seriously as we have to now talking about AI and autonomy? Yeah, it happens all the time. Whenever you get a new technology, especially ones that are much, much more lethal, you have all sorts of different uh, ethical and uh, moral debates. So when we made the machine gun and it was, you know, an artillery and we were just annihilating entire generations of young men, uh, there were, people were saying, where is this going? You know, what, what have we unleashed on ourselves? Same thing happened for nuclear warfare and the same thing is happening for AI. AI is a little different though because in the past uh, we were talking about the weapons themselves. Uh, in this case, we're talking about machines that are making decisions potentially that would take human life. So those who bring up the Martin's Clause, which is, you know, this would, uh, happens at the turn of the century and it, if you rob the dignity of the human in combat, it's unethical, it's unmoral. And uh, there are many people who believe that a robot taking the life of a human robs the human of their dignity and therefore on the merits, just on principle, they should not be pursued under any circumstances. <clears throat> now the Martin's Clause has never been used to stop any weapon being employed, but there is a very vibrant debate. There's a campaign, the campaign to stop killer robots. Mm -hmm. um, and what this all revolves around, John, is uh, what the ethicists would call meaningful human control over decisions of lethal force. And what the DOD policy says is our weapons will be designed and employed so that commanders and operators will be able to exercise appropriate human judgment over the use of lethal force. And it is the debate over appropriate human judgment. Let me give you an example. If I'm aiming at a target in line of sight or line of sensor and I fire a guided weapon, yes, the guided weapon is you know, terminating the engagement. It's deciding, you know, it's homing on the target. <clears throat> but the human designated the target, that's meaningful human control. I'm going to take, I'm going to shoot down that plane or I'm going to kill that tank or I'm going to shoot at that combatant. Now what happens when you have, like the harpy, where you launch and it's loitering and it's searching for something in its automatic target library? Yes, the human has said, go out and hunt for scuds. And if you find a scud, you can kill it. But it's the machine that decides which scud. And if the scud is next to a school, does the machine say, okay, I'm going for it? And so that's where the debate really occurs. You know, at what point do autonomous weapon systems start to break meaningful human control over decisions on the use of for, uh, a lethal force? And uh, I want the Army really wrestling with this because if you're dealing in cities, uh, you're going to have a very high bar on your autonomous logic to say, yeah, I just took a sniper round and I'm going to slew on the bearing and there's four people there. One person, two people are holding a rifle, two people are not. Is the, am I going to kill all four? Am I just going to kill the two with the rifles? What, you know, the, uh, the burden on U.S. Army autonomous systems because you fight, the Army fights amongst the people, it's going to be much higher than when, you know, you're going out after a ship. And, you know, it's pretty easy to determine, hey, that's an enemy ship or that's an enemy merchant ship. 
but it's much, much more difficult in things like compartmented terrain in mega cities, things like that. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit to, um, uh, you know, an issue I had. Uh, so in a class that I was teaching at, at West Point last year, I asked all the cadets, um, who, who, who among you think you're going to go to war alone? And none of them raised their hands. They, they know from that level that we don't do that. We, we tend to go to war with allies. So if we think within, say, a NATO perspective, issues of interoperability are, are, are paramount. Um, they're important. We want to use the same radios to the extent that we can. We want to use the same weapons to the extent that we can uh, for important reasons. Does, does this pose challenges if say technologies are developed within one country and there are elements of, of secrecy surrounding some of the technologies, does it make it difficult to um, keep, say, some of the smaller members of, of NATO um, up to pace with the things that we're doing in terms of AI and autonomy and unmanned platforms? Yeah, this is a great question. In my view, if the Army's going to, just like, you know, the Army and the Air Force led the way with air land battle and NATO adopted follow-on forces attack, if the Army really says we're going to own robotic combat, I think that's going to drag NATO in the same way. And the reason why is we'll be able to say, look, we're not certain we're ever going to have the weight of forces on, in the Baltics, for example, uh, that would necessarily deter a Russian conventional incursion. We're not certain. Maybe over time we'll get there politically and we'll be able to put brigade combat teams right there. But we could do this with unmanned systems. I mean, we could provide de denial by, uh, I mean, deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment if we really work together uh, in having a human machine deterrent force forward. Uh, it'd be a lot easier to do preposition stocks, you know, all sorts of stuff, and you would get the robots into combat really fast. Your RSOI would be really short. Sure. Um, so to me, this is has got to be a NATO thing. And if we just make it a U.S. Army thing and we don't share the communication protocols and the data links and stuff like that, uh, and this is, for example, it's going to have to be a 5G command and control system. It's got to be there because the latency on the 5G will actually allow you to control these unmanned systems even over distance. Um, and if the, you know, if the NATO doesn't have 5G and we do, that's going to be a major, major problem. So uh, to me... Uh, this is another way where, just like air land battle, had a major impact on the way NATO thought about fighting. Um, I think if the Army said we're going to own robotic warfare, it would have the same type thing. So to wrap up, I, I, I think I want to ask you to do a little bit of future gazing. And it's sort of an arbitrary um, horizon line, but let's say 10 years out from now. Mm -hmm. uh, in your opinion, what are the questions and challenges that we're going to be grappling with that we're not even really thinking about right now? Um, well, first of all, the, I call it, instead of gray zone competition, I call it gray zone confrontation. You know, uh, you know if, when you, as I said, the Russians think in terms of union, then partnership, then competition is in the middle. And it's the standard thing that great power, that nation states do. They just compete. It's not inherently bad. It's not inherently good. They're going after their own national interests. Sure. And there's confrontation and conflict. So it's pretty clear that uh, sec uh, President Putin has decided um, I'm, I'm shifting from competition to confrontation. I'm going to be pushing back. I'm going to play spoiler. I'm going to do all sorts of uh, active measures in the gray zone, et cetera. So uh, the question that I have 
in the next 10 years is are we going to successively be able to convince the Russians to go from confrontation back to competition or are we going to slide into more of the conflict? And, uh, you know, this next 10 years is kind of uh, a weird period of time because I do believe Russia is a declining power. And uh, Putin has already demonstrated that he is not risk averse. I mean, he's, uh, he, he's a very aggressive short stack player. Certainly. And uh, so that would, uh, you know, that I, I spend a lot of time thinking of that. The second thing is where are, is synthetic biology and genomics going to go? And uh, like right now, I think the Chinese are already thinking in terms of human enhancement, making better soldiers. I don't think the United States or the Western powers are anywhere near there. I think, you know, um, assisted human operations or repair, you know, we will replace faulty organs and things like that. But where is human enhancement going to go? And we're getting close to where you would be able to start doing things. And it, it's kind of scary, even more scary to me than the sentient AI. Uh, you know, AI put right now, people say, I'm, I'm much more worried about humans doing dumb things than I am about AI doing dumb things. Um, witness the, the umpire in the Saints-Rams uh, game. But, you know, uh, so I think, you know, where is human enhancement going? That one really, you know, within 10 years, we could really see some surprises there. Uh, how is this gray zone competition going to go on? I, as I said this morning, I don't think that should be a primary DOD mission. We should be in the supporting role. It's got to be a whole of government, you know, CIA, paramilitary's got to be out there. Treasury's got to be there. Commerce has got to be there. DHS. Um, so those would be the two things that in the next 10 years I think about and say, whoa, how will this all play out? Well, sir, thank you very much. It's um it's been a fascinating conversation and one that I think we could probably continue for a long time and one that I'm sure will spur continued conversation with, with, with our listeners. Uh, so thank you so much for, for sitting down and, and, uh, and talking to us. It's my pleasure, John. I just want to compliment the mad scientist effort. You know, uh, this reminds me a lot about what was happening in the nineties. As I said, you know, in the nineties, there were all sorts of different efforts where the air force, the army, uh, the joint force was trying to figure out, what does this all mean, Alfie? You know, where, where is it going to go? How is it going to affect warfare? So uh, I really applaud what you're doing down here. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research that we're publishing every day. Thanks again.